You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly. I interview women who inspire me with their work in this world, and today we're going to learn a lot about kelp. And is that the solution we're looking for for climate change? Brianna Warner from Atlantic Sea Farms is here to tell us all about her work, her life, and the future of food. Welcome, Brianna. I am so excited to be here and speaking with you, Dana. So your career did not start in kelp, which might surprise lots of listeners, <laughs> but I would love to understand you know, what the origin was for your interest in looking for the solutions to systemic challenges. Like, when did that all begin? Yeah, and I think that's that's it. You nailed it, Dana. Like, what we're doing at Atlantic Sea Farms is not actually about kelp. Kelp is a solution to some of the biggest issues that we see here on the coast. And I've, I've really developed a career about looking at issues and trying to look at systemic and transformational change that is different uh, and challenges convention. And my background is in economic development. I'm not a marine biologist. Uh, I'm not a diver. You know, I think a lot of people in the seafood, seaweed space are, you know, people who have always been fascinated by kelp beds and they have stories about the biology of the place that they live. And, um, you know, that is not how I came to this, all, although all of that is very wonderful. But really, looking at, <laughs> but really looking at it, the fact that, you know, my entire career has been based on, on seeing people really affected by not planning for more resilient futures, both in the face of climate change, but in the face of inevitable economic change that is, that is just part of human history. And I think we as people are, are horrendously bad at planning and, and finding solutions before they're giant disasters that happen. And I think that has really led me to what I'm doing today. And I always start when I talk about our company to people saying, Atlantic Sea Farms is a vertically integrated kelp company, but this isn't a story about kelp. It's a story about lobster. <laughs> well, we'll get to that. But I think for the, for the purpose of our conversation, it's also a story about you and this idea of, hey, let's plan for the future before the future crashes down on us and ruins the present, that had seeds, not kelp seeds, but it had seeds in your childhood. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. It's, I'm not from Maine, uh, which here they call, they call you from away when you're not from here. Uh, so I'm from away. I'm from central Pennsylvania. And where I grew up, it was a pretty depressed town. The entire community was, de- was at one point dependent on coal and steel and that all of those industries had, you know, gone to the wayside, just like logging had before that. And so the entire economy had been based for years in these small communities in central and eastern and western Pennsylvania on industries that were no longer there, but really had seen a, 
a slow fade out over time and nobody did anything. And there are these company towns. You can see the company houses. You can Everybody's house looks the same. They're all in a central area because everyone used to go to work together. And, um, you know, and now it's there's no jobs. There's no prospects. There's high drug addiction. There's high violent crime. There's this incredible lack of hope. And that's that's the area I grew up in. And seeing that you can look at that and know, geez, like this didn't have to be this way. We have all this incredible capacity as human beings in this town. We have this amazing capacity of people and infrastructure and beautiful surrounding areas and natural resources and and innovation. Um, and no one ever tapped into it. And so it is what it is now. And it never had to be that way. And you had a sense of that even as a little kid, just looking around and seeing the demise of the town and the de- the depressed sort of nature of the business and the individuals. I think that's very powerful, you know, as a little kid to feel that. It certainly was. My mother was from there. Her parents were there. Um, and my mother, who, was, who passed away uh, many years ago, but, you know, her entire goal raising me from what I could you know, gleaned from her as a child was get out of here. How do we get you out of here? How do we get you better opportunities? And I think you could either go one one or two directions from that. You could look at the place growing up and, and have sort of this this feeling of wanting to get out because the place is not where you want to be. Or you can take it and say, what can I learn from this that makes sure that, you know, this this isn't happening elsewhere. And I think when when I came to Maine for the first time after some years in the Foreign Service, we have this incredible coast. We are so dependent on nat- one natural resource industry, lobster, on our coast, and it's doing well. So let's figure out the solutions to the impending problem now when we have the opportunity to do so and the capital to do some and the innovation and the people. I love the correlation, though it's very scary. I think it's very real between a town that thrives and survives on a single industry, which is like coal and lobster. Like I would never think to put those in the same conversation, but here we have it. Um, let's not detour away from your time in the Foreign Service because it is along the same path. As a diplomat, you're trying to like change the future by working in the present. Can you tell me a little bit about working in uh, West Africa and what that was like for you? Yeah, I was recruited into the Foreign Service when I was an undergrad. The Foreign Service in in the United States, diplomats, people always refer to them as uh, white, male, and yell. Uh, and, <laughs> and that's not really representative of our com- country in general. At that time, there was a real energy around Colin Powell's State Department to start recruiting people uh, from different backgrounds, and, you know, between Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell, you suddenly had a new face, you know, on the international world that the United States was facing forward. And, you know, many of us think of the Bush administration and and we don't think of it that way. But in fact, we had the most diverse out, outreach as far as how people looked to the rest of the world. And so there was quite a bit of effort at that time to try to recruit uh, more diversity within the Foreign Service that represented the country more. And and I didn't grow up with a ton of money. Um, I was a woman from central Pennsylvania. I was learning Arabic in grad school because, I mean, in undergrad, excuse me, because 
my focus was really at that time, it was right after September 11th. And my thinking was, okay, well, this doesn't have to be this way. Like, I need to learn Arabic and see what, you know, I think <laughs> I think I need to go to the Middle East, of course. And like, I, I moved to Egypt and I moved to Jordan and I just wanted to kind of like learn and understand. And, and um, so I was recruited into the Foreign Service at that time when I was when I was a sophomore in college. Uh, and was given the opportunity for them to pay for the rest of my school, my grad school. And then I went into the Foreign Service very young, uh, right after grad school. And, you know, after having served many years and, you know, lived many years, excuse me, in the Middle East, uh, went to the University of Jordan, spent some time in Yemen, some time in Syria, it became abundantly clear to me that I didn't have uh, the ability to sort of discount uh, the gender issues of working in the Middle East. I was had the tremendous opportunity to go to South Sudan, to go to Guinea um, at, on different tours and, and really be on the ground floor of some really exciting policies to try to make those communities, you know, help them with their own realization of their own future uh, by moving off natural resources, by employing more of the population. Uh, and that's really where I got excited about continuing to work on this kind of global scale. But it also has limitations when you're working for the United States government as to what you can do and how you can deploy resources uh, and I also have a married life where um, him being evacuated every few months was no longer in the cards for us <laughs> to continue to be married. So we moved to Maine soon after that. I did one more tour at the Mission to the European Union and then moved back to Maine. And how did you end up in a bunch of places where you had to be evacuated? And boy, give your husband so much credit because evacuating once would probably be enough for me. But I think that he withstood <laughs> more than one evacuation. The United States government really does protect their diplomats to the extreme and their family. So they're maybe a little bit more uh, apt to pull people out. This was also, remember, around Benghazi. Um, and so people's reaction in the State Department was to pull people out immediately. So I was I was lucky enough to stay in, in these countries where there was some civil unrest that caused those situations. Uh, and I say lucky enough to stay because I think it is in crises where people are willing to think uh, more in a more innovative way to find solutions often. And I think how do you kind of take that urgency that people feel in critical situations uh, and take that same urgency and apply it to areas where people aren't under gunfire and when people aren't concerned about if they're going to have housing in the morning or food in the morning or if their family's going to be safe, but yet can still see a future in which we need to act quickly and effectively in order to mitigate potential volatility in the market, which is obviously much less dramatic than volatility in conflict. Uh, but it is it is still kind of of the same ilk of how do we get people to think as if climate change is happening now, because it is, even if you can't see it. In Guinea, um, I understand that you used food as a way to bring people together. And, you know, nothing so far has put together food transformation future. And I think Guinea, at least in what I know, was a beginning point of that. Can you tell me a little bit about the community and as a diplomat in Guinea? 
Yeah. So I, I come from an Italian family. So being in the kitchen with my mother and my sisters was pretty much the most undesirable thing I could think of as the youngest. <laughs> being, being told what to do in the kitchen at every moment and just being barked at as the youngest. Um, so I found my niche being the baker because none of them could bake to save their lives because that would mean that they would have to look at a recipe and that just would never happen. And I really got into pastry. And when I was in Guinea, it's not a country where people are into going to, you know, the fanciest new restaurant or, you know, there's no electricity in most of the country. People are wondering where they're getting their next meal. But food is still very much looked at as the way you can bring your family together, as the way you have discussions. And while that food is not something that we would think of as kind of gourmet, it certainly has this incredible cultural heritage behind it. And in Guinea at that time, there had been a coup and then a bunch of civil civil unrest that resulted in some pretty ugly stuff. But one of the keys to really getting through any sort of democratic elections was helping the youth groups who kind of lead these street gangs as people go out during elections, which we've heard about a lot in sub-Saharan Africa or, you know, South Asia, is to really kind of get these youth groups thinking about their future rather than about the present civil strife. So as a young diplomat with a freestanding house, you know, this is in Iraq, we don't have a bunch of compound houses. These are freestanding houses, you drive yourself to work. Um, I invited a bunch of youth groups from different ethnic groups over for breakfast. And I made pancakes with maple syrup. I had my father-in-law send me maple syrup from his farm in northern Maine wow. <laughs> over a diplomatic pouch. It took about a year, and I mean, a month and a half to get there through diplomatic pouch. Uh, and had them all over for breakfast. And they just couldn't believe that a diplomat was making them food and putting it out on the table and serving them what they called bread with sugar water. Uh, and, <laughs> Might be truer than it, we think, but yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it really became, you know, a, a staple every week of just having this group of young people over. And, and youth there really kind of spans from 16 to 25, 16 to 30. They're very influential. And so started making pies and started finding ways to make pies with avocados from my tree in the back or papayas or mangoes or cactus fruits, like whatever we could find, I would just make pies out of. So I started being very creative with my baking, but it also really was a way to bring people together over something that they found really exciting and new and interesting, but also just the fact that someone would make them food Everyone was looking to America and West Africa at that time and thinking like, okay, like this is uh, number one, it's a ruling superpower, but additionally, like maybe they see us now. And then to be able to be part of that by inviting people over to my house and making them dinner and having my door open to them and serving food. I think food is the way that people see can see this commonality in this way that they can be uh, on the same playing field. I just think it's such a remarkable story. Uh, okay, so you, your husband had been evacuated enough times and you thought maybe it'd be good to spend your life with him. He was from Maine. Um, I'd love to hear a bit about how you decided to choose, because you could have done anything, but choose Atlantic Sea Farms. Like why? Why did that feel like the right next step for you? It definitely didn't. Uh, <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> 
That's the best answer yeah. ever. <laughs> you know, career changers, right? You don't ever kind of chart that path. Uh, I was working with the lobster industry at the time through an organization to think about ways for lobster um, fishermen to diversify in the face of climate change. So, you know, to set that scene a little bit, the Gulf of Maine is warming faster than 98% of oceans in the world. And most of the ground fish industry has basically disappeared uh, from overfishing, from changes in the environment. You know, there's a, there's a lot of reasons for that. But the lobster industry is extremely strong and has been for the last 20 years. It has seen some record landings over the last 20 years. And the reason for the, the strength is mostly based on the fact that we have an owner-operator fishery here. So what that means for your listeners is if you go to Canada or Massachusetts or really most of the fisheries in the United States, you know, one guy bankrolls four or five, six boats. There's a bunch of people who don't have any stake in the business that are out there just kind of fishing until the quota goes. And then they bring in the fish and, you know, it's government regulated to the extreme. It's, it's, it's volatile, but it's also bankrolled usually by one or two people. Um, there's, you know, one or two processors that hold all the money. The lobster industry is not like that at all. And that has been just a tradition in Maine. And I know, Dana, you've spent a lot of time in Maine. You know, we're fiercely independent up here. And so an idea of a consolidated fishery was never <laughs> an option in Maine. So they've actually put it into regulation and statute that you have to own your boat to fish on your boat. So when you're eating your lobster, when your listeners are eating their lobster from Maine, you're actually purely supporting a family business every time you're eating it because everyone owns their own future in the lobster industry. And that has also made it so that they are conserving the industry like no other fishery in the country. So you can actually go across the line to Massachusetts and the lobster population drops off, even though the temperature is not substantially different. And so they're putting things in like when they pick up an egg-bearing female, they cut her tail and they throw her back in and she can't be sold for five years we also have an upper and lower size limit. So by the time she gets old enough for that, that V-notch to be grown out on her tail, she's too big to, see, to eat. So we're, we're kind of constantly refurbishing the population on the bottom of the ocean. We have trap limits. We're fishing bait on the ground. So all of that is the reason why we've seen such great trends in lobster. But there's also something darker at play, and that's the Labrador current that goes through the Gulf of Maine is bringing down the Arctic ice melt that is no longer ice. It's warm. And so that is why we're seeing the, the coast warm faster than 90% of oceans in the world. And, and the temperature right now is perfect for lobsters, which has really kind of engendered this explosion along with the conservation measures. But the year to year is increasingly volatile. People talked about how they used to be able to say the date in which the lobsters would shred, shed every April. Two years ago, they shed it in November. Wow. It's just, it's so wild, the changes mm. in the fishery from year to year. Yesterday, last year was one of the best years on record. This year is one of the worst. And so I think it's, the writing is on the wall. Just a few more degrees than these lobster larvae will not survive at the rate that they are now, despite those conservation methods. And I think that's the, that's the worst part about all of this with climate change is it doesn't matter where you live or how you live the world around you is going to affect the nature around you. And I think the the lobster industry is really the beacon of what's to come for most coastal communities. As we are, you know, so over dependent on this mo lobster monoculture, there will be a time 
in in the near future, whether that's five years or 30 years, there will be a time when the lobster landings are not going to be like they are today and where that lobster population is going to dwindle dramatically. And in the meantime, it's going to be increasingly volatile year over year. We saw what happened with the snow crab fishery this year. It just was gone, just gone overnight in, in, in Alaska. Uh, and it's probably not coming back. And it was great six years ago. And it's not from overfishing. Right. I, I mean, it, it's a it's a heartbreaking story. What's important to draw from this is with your background and the way that you think, you're like, I see the future. How do we change and do something different to protect jobs, livelihood, and the planet? Um, So you went from working, you know, with the lobstermen, you're still working with the lobstermen, but in a sort of climate positive way with Atlantic Sea Farms. So you got there in, I think, 2018, and they had launched in 2009. Like, what was the state of Maine and kelp and that business when you arrived? So when I started working with the lobster fishery to kind of identify new ways that people could be making on the water to make the coast more resilient and make diversified coastal incomes, it, it really became obvious that aquaculture was one of the key answers to the question. I say one of the key answers because there's a lot of answers to this question. And that's that's the thing that we don't like in America. We always want one answer that's really simple. Uh, and this is this is one of the answers that we need to deploy on the coast of Maine. There's a lot more solutions, but I want to kind of narrow in on that aquaculture example. You know, oysters, mussels, seaweed, scallops can all be farmed in the state of Maine. They're much more controlled than the lobster industry as far as how people can deploy those resources, how people can harvest for themselves, uh, much less capital intensive in a lot of ways. But oysters, mussels, they have a market. Seaweed, at that time, 98% of the seaweed that we ate in the United States was imported. It was one of the fastest growing categories of food in the United States, you know, before 1990, Try finding a place anywhere other than L.A., New York, you know, a few other cities that had sushi. And now it's everywhere. Uh, Seaweed snacks, that wasn't even a a thing. And now you can't keep them on the shelves, you know, between seaweed and that bright green seaweed salad that's dyed with all the same stuff that's in Mountain Dew. And the seaweed snacks, which everyone under the age of 30 eats like it's chips. You know, there's no innovation. And those are the only three products. And they're being consumed in massive quantities, both in the United States and elsewhere. So it it be it was pretty obvious to me at that time, like, okay, nobody's growing this stuff in the United States. There's this company called Ocean Approved, which is now Atlantic Sea Farms that grew about 20,000 pounds. Um, we have more coastline than the state of California. Like, this is the opportunity. This is where 4,000 plus lobster license holders can stake their claim in a growing season that is counter seasonal to lobster and uses all of the same equipment as lobster. It's fascinating that it does use the same equipment. So the the same people could easily be trained or learn this new skill to sort of future proof their jobs. It's amazing. Exactly. And so that's, I was asked to take over in 2018 after a founder transition, um, a an offer of which I said no to about five times before I finally <laughs> agreed to do it. I had two kids at home. I was like, no way. But then I thought about it and thought like this, this could be really transformational. What, what does it look like if we have a hundred partner farmers on the coast of Maine growing a hundred thousand pounds? That becomes 
a, a real industry. And so we started this in 2018. I took over our first harvest season was 2019. The entire country in 2018 grew 30,000 pounds of kelp. This year, Atlantic Sea Farms alone grew a million. It's been incredible not only to see how this theory has actually proven out to be viable, but also to see how excited and supportive the lobster community has been of us, of our mission, and of joining on. And, you know, the first people who joined on were people who knew me, who trusted me, who knew that they could trust me when I said, I know this sounds crazy, but if you want to just go ahead and get this lease, I'll give you free seed that looks like mold on a line. You put it out to your farms. We'll teach you how to do it. And I promise I'll show up at the dock in six months and like we'll be with you the whole time. But I promise I'll have a truck and I'll buy it all. And they're like, this sounds crazy and let's do it. Oh my God. It actually sounds, it sort of sounds like Jack and the Beanstalk, right? Like here's a bean, we're going to plant it. And at the end, it's going to be awesome. And people are like, okay, I trust you. Sure. Um, can you tell people a little bit about um, the process of seeding, growing and harvesting kelp? I mean, it's a long process, but if you can bring it down to its essentials. Sure. What we do is we we currently, we just built out a 27,000 square foot facility in southern Maine in February 2022. And that facility has in it processing, fermentation for some of our fermented products, and then our nursery. So what we do in our nursery is where we grow our kelp seeds. So most brands, when you go to the grocery store, let's say you have your popcorn brand. That is usually a few people sitting in an office that call a co-packer, say, I invented this fun thing in my kitchen. Can you make it? The co-packer calls a bunch of ingredient suppliers, finds the cheapest one, orders it, produces it, puts it in bags. The people who run that company never even see the product before it goes on the shelf. And then they throw millions of dollars of marketing money for you to buy it at the store. That's how I would say 90% of your groceries that you get work. There's no provenance. There's no traceability. If there is, it's like they go through an ingredient person and say, like, give me the best sourced corn. But there's no really, like, connection to that food. We are on the polar opposite. Maybe it's the definition of insanity. <laughs> but we we produce, it's not just that we do the farming. Like, we produce the seed, as well. So what we do is we go out every fall and we find the parents material. So we go out to the wild beds. About 10 pounds of wild kelp will make about 500,000 pounds of line grown kelp. It's it's not destructive even a little bit to the natural beds. So we go out, we uh, find the stuff that we think looks the best. Uh, we bring it back to our nursery where we um, use that that sort of, it's, it's called the sorus tissue. It's basically the reproductive tissue. Uh, we have it kind of release all its babies into seawater. And then we have those sporophytes basically attached to line that we give it in the nursery. And then we give it lots of love and care and singing lullabies and 12 hours <laughs> of daylight and 12 hours of night in seawater tanks and really incubate it for about... 30 to 45 days. And at that point, we um, the farmers come, they pick it up, and it's all on spools, kind of like a kite spool, if you know how that looks. It covered in kind of this new growth seed that attaches to it. They take that, that pipe, they bring it out to the ocean where they have thousand foot horizontal lines connected by moorings on each side. 
They wrap that seed twine around those lines. They connect it back to the moorings. It lives about seven feet under the water connected to those thousand foot lines. And then that's where it lives until they harvest it in April, where we can have, you know, kelp leaves that can be eight, nine, ten feet long and grow about between four and ten pounds a foot of line in the water. And so most farms are about four acres. They have about 13,000 feet of line on it. So 13 of those thousand horizontal lines. And it grows with no arable land, no fresh water, no inputs. Uh, Basically just keeping your lines tight and keeping them straight and making sure to check them after storms. And then during harvest season, they bring the line up to their lobster hauler or their mast and boom if they get kind of a, a boom piece on the back of their boat. And then you bring it up and you cut it with a knife into a bag and then it comes to us. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. So there's two other ways to look at kelp, which I'm excited to talk about. One is kelp as food, right? Because there had been, as you said, sea snacks and sushi. and But what you've done is said, hey, like this is nutritional, delicious food. Let's look at ways we can, you know, make it into all kinds of other seafood products. Do you want to talk a little bit about the development of the food side? There is so much innovation to be done with seaweed. And I feel like we haven't even scratched the surface. If you look at the grocery aisles right now, there's seaweed in a lot of things, but not kind of called out and mostly used from like agar agar is a seaweed or carrageenan, which is a rockweed that's in your toothpaste and your shampoo and all that. But as far as kelp or edible seaweeds that are there for flavor or texture or nutrition, there is a quarter of one aisle that has it in the entire grocery store. And that is what I can't believe still exists because uh, I do feel like it is probably one of the most racist things. The fact that we still have ethnic aisles uh, in the grocery store is just unbelievable to me, but it is in the Asian aisle and it's dried seaweed for nori sheets basically or dried seaweed snacks or the sushi takeout area. So that means we have 15 and two thirds aisles of the grocery store to put seaweed. (laughs) To tackle. And what seaweed imparts from a flavor perspective is umami. You know, chefs have been talking about umami for forever. The American public has only been become aware of it as something that's important for why we like food in the past 10 years in the United States. Why does American food not have depth? Well, (laughs) (laughs) really just one thing. And I think... um, 
you know, kelp is really outstanding for an umami flavor, but from a nutrition perspective, additionally, uh, it, it is one of the best uh, sources of iodine. Americans tend to be very iodine deficient, especially as we stopped eating iodized salt. Uh, iodine is, in, is imperative for thyroid function, which now we also are starting to understand more about thyroid and why it's important in thyroid health. But additionally, a really good source of magnesium, potassium, calcium. There's a lot. It's one of the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet. And it's, it's the way that people can show how they're contributing to a better climate future because it is grown with no water, no air, arable land. It removes carbon and nitrogen from the water. And I will, would love to challenge anyone to tell me that it is not the best food for the planet that you can be eating. The second best possibly being oysters. Wow. You, you're, you must be a very healthy human since, you know, kelp, kelp is so good for the body, but it's also great to mitigate climate change. Can you talk a little bit about the climate change mitigation? Sure. And, and we always talk about this kind of saying, like, we are a climate change adaptation company. You know, our focus, our focus is on climate change adaptation also happening to be growing a regenerative food that is actually helping to locally mitigate some of the effects of climate change. So uh, there, there is ways to oversell the impacts of kelp, and people do. We're not sequestering carbon. We're not going to reverse climate change. We're not going to save the planet with kelp. Uh, but certainly anything that you put on the plate that is not kelp is more carbon intensive and worse for the planet. And this is actually making it better. And the way it makes it better is when you plant kelp, it does suck carbon and nitrogen from the water column. So when you think about it, we have too much CO2 gas in the air, which we know. And when it, that carbon hits the ocean surface, the ocean absorbs that carbon and that changes the pH of the ocean. So it makes it more acidic. So everyone that's heard of ocean acidification, it's exactly as it sounds. The ocean becomes more acidic, it becomes less base, and that means that shell-bearing organisms, just like if you think about Coca-Cola and pouring it onto metal, you see an erosion of the metal, think about a more acidic ocean and the effects on shellfish when you have a more, more acidity in the ocean. You're starting to see chips on shellfish, you're starting to see less shell strength, shellfish are putting more effort into growing their shells than to growing their meat. So they're less, uh, they're less viable, both as a food, but also just as, as, you know, if you're looking at phytoplankton, for example, which is a shell bearing organism and one of the most important oxygen producers in the world, they are being seriously adversely affected by ocean acidification. So by planting kelp, that kelp is then taking that carbon and sucking it in. Now, if we left that kelp in the ocean that we're growing, it would just, you know, fall off the lines and go back into the ocean and release the carbon. But because we are taking it out of the ocean, we're removing that carbon with it. And when we have done studies with several scientific organizations of planting mussels, both within the kelp halo, on the outside of the kelp halo, and way outside the kelp halo, the muscle strength within the kelp halo is almost double as strong in only six months and the, the muscle meat is substantially larger. Now, whether that's because it is able to put more energy into producing meat and, and growing more meat or because it is, you know, feeding from the detritus of the kelp, we don't know. But we do know that, that both of those are effects of planting it under the muscles. So by fact of being there and being removed from the water, it is actually making the planet, the, the local halo effect 
you know, better in mitigating some of the effects. And what about some of the things that are unknown? Like, I've heard you speak about kelp and the deep ocean. You know, there's the mystery, there's mysteries here. There's a lot of mysteries. There's kelp, kelp is so, you know, it's been eaten in East Asian culture for forever. It was eaten in the United States by Native American communities and then by settlers. And then, you know, the Irish continent used to rely a lot on kelp. You know, this is something that has been eaten forever since human history started. And some some in the algae world would argue that algae really started human life. But <laughs> I think um, <laughs> what we haven't done until the last 10 years as a global population is really study what the effects of kelp are on the environment and, and also the other uses beyond food. And so one of the big unknowns is, you know, what could be the environmental benefits of kelp beyond producing it for food? And there are people who are exploring biofuels. I think it's probably not viable, but it's it's an interesting thought experiment to see what might be available for that. But there are also people looking at it to potentially sink it to the bottom of the ocean and potentially sequester carbon for hundreds of years. There is very little science to support those suppositions. But it is something that scientists are looking at. Again, I'm I'm skeptical that they will come out with much. I think in theory, sure, sinking kelp to the bottom of the ocean would sequester carbon. But how much carbon do you use getting it down to the bottom of the For ocean? Sure. <laughs> in which case, like it it feels like, you know, those kind of simple and seemingly elegant solutions tend to always be more complicated than they see on seem on the surface. Uh, but as far as uses, like can kelp be used in, can seaweeds in general be used in plastics? And the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. And what would the what would the effect of seaweeds being used in plastic, like how does that work? It, it, are, are we saying that it replaces plastics? I know there is interest in seaweeds as textile, the same way mushrooms have been at the base of textiles. Yep, it's basically you get not only the reduction of the other products necessary to make those plastics or those textiles. But additionally, that means you grow more kelp, which is good for the, you know, good for the ocean in and of itself. And in terms of innovation at, at Linux Seed Farms, what, what type of innovation are you looking at? I know that you have a scientist, I mean, maybe have multiple scientists, but you have a scientist on staff and, you know, there's so much research and work being done. What, what are you focusing your attention on in terms of innovation? I will say about 70% of our business is focused on selling our kelp to other people. We're doing a lot of innovation on just making sure we're able to supply those industries. Like yesterday, for example, I had a conversation with a cosmetic company that's looking about how we can bioferment our kelp so they can take out some of the chemical compounds that they have in their cosmetics. And that is really exciting. That's better for all of us if that happens. So that's some innovation I'm really excited about. Some of the extractions like alginates and polyphenols and other phacoidins and other sort of uh, incredible compounds that right now are chemically derived, kelp can actually provide. So how can we go about, you know, developing on that side? I think another innovation that I am extremely excited about is new species. So in the United States, four species of seaweeds are grown. In the Gulf of Maine alone, 250 macroalgaes, which is large seaweeds, are present naturally. Wow, that's a lot. I mean, in a small, you know, yes, we might have the most coastline, but that's still a lot in a relatively small space. Yeah. I mean, it's incredibly exciting to even contemplate. As you 
are innovating. Have there been some failures along the way, things that actually didn't quite work out as you planned? Yes, I one time, you know, we have this incredible support from the seaweed seafood community in Maine and 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 elsewhere and which is particularly inc- impressive given that seafood in America and globally is is dominated by like 96% by men in in C-suite positions and so the support that has been rolled out for us is pretty impressive but called a fellow seafood producer who's much much larger who's doing fish and said hey I want to do a trial on your freezing machine could we put this in your machine and he said of course like we'll just find the time we'll figure it out and he calls me and I can hear the machine in the background saying Brie, this stuff is like glitter. I'm never going to get this up. <laughs> and he was like, what the? He had to like shut down his line for 24 hours. I'm like, how on earth do we make it up to this person that was just being kind, just doing us a favor, shut down line time for us? But it's it's like like that all the time. Last year, we collected some seed that was of a species, it was of sugar kelp, but the sugar kelp species that we grabbed was exceptionally floaty. So the 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 part that attaches to the line basically grew out in these tubes that created the floatiest sugar kelp I've ever seen. And it was on one or two farms. And so it was just floating all around the ocean. And the guys oh were having God. to go out and weigh it down. Like before harvest, there was oh a big goodness. storm and they would have to go out and like put weights on it, weights on it, weights on it. And so I was going to pick up on the first day of harvest and I pulled up and the fisherman goes, I'm never farming sugar cup again. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, like that's a mistake we made. I'm sorry about that. So like, you know, I think, I think that you, you just have to learn from them and mistakes are only mistakes if you repeat them. Right. I, I agree. I mean, I, I don't actually believe in the, the notion of failure, right? Like but they're all experiences. Some experiences are more successful than other experiences and to the floaty kelp that is going to be my favorite new term definitely that's how we refer in the office now is like remember the floaty kelp of 2022 <laughs> that's memorable uh you were talking about how male dominated uh, your industry is and frankly 90 percent of industry and when women are trying to fundraise grow their businesses they hit a lot of obstacles for you as a woman-owned business seeking investors is that been a challenge for you? Like what what has it looked like and what's the process of building this business? Yeah, I think to put a finer point on on your comment, last year, 2% of venture funding went to women-run businesses. And whenever I go to speak at conferences or to investors or Blue Food Summits or whatever I'm speaking on, I always say, if this is not the only thing we're talking about, then what are we doing? Like the fact that it's always kind of a side note on investor conferences is unbelievable to me. So we've worked extremely hard on raising funding. We are we are venture backed. Um, I don't own the company. I don't come from money. This isn't something I could just bankroll. We have very mission focused investors that have invested in our company, and we've raised a substantial amount of money. And we're in in seafood. We're a minority, and in a, a real minority. And in natural foods, we're kind of a minority. And by kind of, I mean still eighty five percent is not looks does not look like us. But in seafood, it's even more extreme. And you know, there's a lot of reasons for that, and a lot to unpack. And a lot of it is just the system that has engendered 
people to take men more seriously in their business ventures. And again, a lot to unpack there, but it's also the way that women uh, have been told that they need to approach fundraising and how they need to speak and to apologize for being there in the first place. And so we've done a lot in the female entrepreneurship community. 60% of my staff is women, including all of my on the water staff that's working with fishermen, my warehouse staff, you know, really kind of showing through example how this can look and, you know, making sure that we don't hold any comments on why it's important, but additionally to support women when they're looking for help by talking through business plans, talking through fundraising plans. And it's something that I do a lot in my spare time and my side time when I'm not running the business. So that's fantastic that you've found mission aligned, you know, investors who see the potential and see beyond gender, which is just, you know, it, it is devastating to think only 2% of funding goes to women. Um, you've described kelp as a beacon of hope. And I just want to ask, like, what do you feel that you're looking to prove? Not like, what are you as an individual setting out to prove? But I, there's a thesis for your business, and it relates to being a beacon of hope. But how would you describe that? I would say that what we are trying to prove is the incredible human potential in mitigating and adapting to climate change when stakeholders are included in the process, when they are leading the process. And if we're going to prove anything, you know, you hear all these offshore farms for seaweed or all of these ways that people are going to use robots to mitigate climate change. We're always looking toward technology to solve a problem that humans have solved and humans are the ones that are going to have to deal with it. Instead of engaging people in the power of the, the human race and the incredible skill set of the people that are most affected by, by the intractable problems around us to be the people who lead us into the future. And if we can prove anything, it's that. And that's what I want to hitch my wagon to because I know it's true. That's so beautiful. And so really you're looking for the fishermen, because those are your humans, you know, to take control, be part of this solution instead of looking to technology to create a solution that leaves out the humans. Because at the end of the day, it's the humans that have to live and need a livelihood and fulfillment and have a, a view that is has more insight, but also more effect than a technology solution. And not even part of the solution. Thus, they lead it. Yeah. And I think we had our annual farmers meeting on Thursday. And, you know, to put a finer point on what this means for people, many Many fishermen in our network, they're not politically progressive. I don't know that if we sat down and had a political conversation, we would agree on a whole lot. Uh, but that's that doesn't matter. That's not what we're talking about here. This isn't about the kind of the great divide of the American population in the future. We are climate warriors together. And to be able to sit there and say to a group of fishermen, you guys now represent 85% of the line-grown seaweed in the United States. Maine fishermen are leading the regenerative kelp industry in the United States. And to see the looks on their face and the pride when people interview them from you know different news outlets, and there's people with a real thick accent, maybe never finished high school, who got into this because they thought they could make some extra money when... 
they saw the lobster fishery going a little sideways saying, and I'm helping the ocean and I'm making a better future for my family. That's not because we said that. We said you can make more money if you do this. But that's what they came to on their own because they believe it and the pride and the the like the incredible life behind what they're saying and, and the and the impressiveness of which they're speaking about how they're leaders. I'm going to Korea at the beginning of April with the World Wildlife Fund and a fisherman that's going with me, you know, he's never been to East Asia and he's going to represent the US kelp industry. It's just so moving. I'm, you know, in not full-blown tears here, but that's very moving. Um, at the end of each podcast, I ask my guest if there is a woman who they think deserves more attention and the world needs to know about them. Who would that person be for you? And how are they changing your world or the world around us? So someone that I have recently been working with quite a bit in an amazing company that I've been working with quite a bit is this company called Lollyware. And their CEO, C. Briganti, is this amazing woman who is just really invested in design in the future. But she is working on seaweed cutlery and straws and things that basically their their slogan is designed to disappear. And it has been really fun to find another woman that is basically exactly my age and has had her head down on something that nobody has ever done before and push through wall after wall after wall to get where they need to be to make this substantial change that they're trying to do. And they're using our kelp in their products. You know, what we've really found in each other is just like this incredible sisterhood of people that are trying to do what was before impossible. And so I, I encourage all of your listeners to reach out to that and, and get some straws that are designed to disappear, but actually hold up. You know, they're not like the paper straws that you put it in your seven up and then it's done like 20 minutes later. Um, these are these are things that you can use seven, eight times. Uh, and it's 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 pretty incredible to see people doing things that have just never been done before and, and being so determined in the way that they do them. You've inspired me. I'm ready to go check her out. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's been such a pleasure to get to know you a little bit and hear the amazing things that kelp, well, the amazing things that kelp can do that is so delicious and great for business and great for climate. I mean, that's a trifecta. You can't can't really get better than that. For all you listeners, I hope you enjoyed um, and join me on, on my next Speaking Broadly podcast as I interview incredible and inspiring women. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.